everybody, and welcome to the Snark Knights podcast, a podcast where we're talking about comic book movies. I am your co-host, Snark Knight Luke, and with me, as always, The Daywalker. I mean, uh, Snark Knight Jahan. <laughs> well, I, I would hope you could walk out during the day. Hey, of course I walk around during the day. That's why I'm tanner than you. <laughs> yes, that's why. Anywho, skin color. <laughs> this was uh, this is a, a particularly exciting episode for me because this is one of the first comic book movies I ever saw. Wow, interesting. I was actually going to ask you about that because I saw this in the theater three times, and I was old enough to go on my own. Well, la di da, Mister Seventeen or older over here. Yeah, I'm old. And this movie was rated R. Yes, very rated R. On that note, shall we get into this? Yes, let's talk about Blade. Blade from 1998. Blade was created by writer Marv Wolfman and artist Gene Colan. And unlike our last episode's creator joke with Marv Wolfman, uh, he actually did create Blade and was so determined to prove it that he ended up suing Marvel. And Blade's first appearance was in a comic called Tomb of Dracula, issue number 10, which came out in 1973. And this movie was directed by Stephen Norrington and stars Wesley Snipes, Stephen Dorff, Chris Christopherson, Nabouche Wright, Donald Logue, Udo Kier, Arlie Jover, Tracy Lords, Tim Guinea, Sana Lathan, and just randomly... Judson Scott, who I'm only mentioning because I've seen this movie a dozen times. Never noticed Judson Scott, who is Khan's number one in Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. Now that we've established how many times we've both seen this movie, I'm assuming you can give me a full synopsis off the top of your head. Possibly, but not as creatively. So let's go with the creatively route. It is 1967 and a pregnant woman is rushed into the emergency room, a large wound in her neck. The child is saved, but the mother dies. Now, 30 years later, it is 1997, and a dude bro is riding in a hot car with a hot lady in hopes of getting some. They arrive at a slaughterhouse and head into a back room where the kill floor has been converted into a rave. Lady starts ignoring dude bro, and he decides to leave, but stops as he notices blood falling from the ceiling. Suddenly, the fire sprinklers start spraying blood over all the ravers who are clearly into it, and Dude Bro realizes he's the only human there amongst vampires. Before they could kill the poor dope, the blood shower stops as all the vampires realize their hunter stands among them. It is the Daywalker, Blade. Using various weapons, Blade kills as many vampires as he can. Eventually, he is left with Quinn the loud and cocky number two to Deacon Frost. Rather than just killing the vampire, Blade sets him on fire, checks to make sure the human was not bitten, and gets out of there just as the cops arrive. Quinn arrives at a local medical facility, where the morgue attendant Curtis takes a blood sample to his ex, hematologist Dr. Karen Jensen. They head down to the morgue so Karen can get a better look at the body and try to figure out why his blood is so strange. Curtis starts the Y incision for the autopsy, just as Quinn wakes up and attacks Curtis, ripping his neck open. 
Quinn then turns his attention to Karen and bites in just as Blade shows up to finish him off, which it seems would have been easier to do in the first place rather than set him on fire. Anyways, security shows up and distracts Blade, allowing Quinn to escape. Seeing that Karen has been bitten, Blade contemplates kill her or save her, but she reminds him of his mother and how she died, even though he should have no memory of that. So he flees with her back to his base of operations. Here, we meet Blade's mentor and partner, Abraham Whistler, an old and cantankerous man with a bum leg. Whistler injects the doctor with a garlic extract in hopes of preventing the vampirism from taking hold. In a boardroom or something, several vampires sit around discussing the fight at the rave and the dangers of exposure. They drag in Deacon Frost who points out that they should all be feared and living like gods rather than cowering in the shadows, and they point out to him that they are purebloods while he was simply turned. Back on the streets, Blade heads into a holistic medicine shop to buy the serum that helps keep his craving for blood in check, though he appears to be building up an immunity to it. Karen wakes up back in the lair, and after having a little look around at Blade's things, witnesses the injection of the serum, freaks out a little, and tries to run. The pair stop her and exposit at her about their war against vampires and some of the rules about vampires. Whistler gives Karen some vampire mace, and she leaves with Blade to head home. Blade drops Karen off at her apartment. Inside, she is confronted by a cop checking in on her due to concern from her co-workers, Believing that he is actually a vampire, she maces him to no effect. Blade, who shows up to stop the officer from killing Karen after using her as bait, points out that the cop is a familiar, a human lackey to a vampire, and in this case, to Deacon Frost. Blade kicks the cop around for a bit and drags him outside, where he, who I remind you is a black man, continues to beat up on the white cop and pulls a gun on him in broad daylight in Los Angeles. The late 90s were apparently very different from what I remember. The cop escapes, but that's okay, because Blade and Karen stake out the cop's car. The dope shows up, and the duo follow him to a local vampire club that happens to be the location of a huge vampire data bank overwatched by Pearl, a massively overweight vampire working on deciphering data for Frost. And what do you know, he completes it just as Blade shows up, allowing Blade to steal the hard drive containing the decrypted info, something about the resurrection of the blood god, La Magra. Following this series of coincidences are more, because this is also the location where the vampires keep the pages of the Book of Erebus, the vampire bible. Ancient and priceless. Somehow, a vampire child, loyal to Frost, got into the room to toy with Blade for a bit. She is followed by Quinn and several soldiers, and they proceed to trash everything. Blade is overcome by the odds, but fortunately, Whistler just happens to be nearby and blows a hole into the room through the subway the vault happens to be built right next to. The trio escapes, but are separated, leaving Karen and Blade alone on a train. Meeting back up with Whistler, we learn that that Blade isn't exactly human the opening scene was of Blade's birth. His mother, bitten by a vampire while pregnant, gave Blade vampire strength and hunger, but also the ability to survive in daylight. Whistler had discovered Blade on the streets, took him in, trained him, and helped create the serum. Meanwhile on a beach, 
Frost and his crew are slathering up with sunblock and donning heavy black clothing and motorcycle helmets. That may seem like strange swimwear, but they actually have Dragonetti with them, and they aren't sharing their clothes. In fact, they pull out his fangs just before the sun rises, horrifically melting and then exploding the old vampire. Frost takes the fangs back to the council, claiming control of the organization. Karen has been experimenting to find a cure for vampirism, and in the process chances upon EDTA, an anticoagulant. When introduced into vampire blood, it causes the cells to explode, giving Blade a new weapon. An hour into the movie, Karen is still changing into a vampire. Blade leaves the two to get a new supply of his serum when Deacon Frost, still covered in sunblock, confronts him in broad daylight, standing in a park, holding a young girl hostage. Frost is there to retell Blade all about who Blade is, and offer a team-up since humans will never accept Blade as one of them. Blade rejects the truce, and Frost throws the girl into the street and runs off after Blade fires a few rounds at him, then charges into the street to save the girl, because no cars are even trying to stop. Also, again, shots fired in broad daylight, and no cops are called. Karen thinks she's figured out a cure and tests it on herself, seeing as she doesn't have much time anyways. Frost, his crew, and several soldiers show up, beat Whistler nearly to death, including biting him, and kidnap Karen. When Blade arrives, there's a videotape waiting for him beside an almost dead Whistler. The old man warns Blade to not go after Karen because he is actually the key Frost needs to resurrect the Blood God. He also demands Blade's gun so he can kill himself, which he absolutely does. 100% dead. 100% dead. Pissed off, Blade goes after Frost anyways. Frost explains to Karen that the Blood God will change every human in the world into a vampire. Apparently that's just his endgame. Blade arrives in Frost's penthouse, somehow sneaking in a souped-up motorcycle, and becomes death incarnate laying waste to all that stand before him. He even gets the chance to test the new EDTA injections, horrifically causing two vampires to burst like blood balloons. He gets to Frost's bedroom and finds his mother, who has been a vampire since the fateful day she gave birth. Frost is the one who bit his mother in the first place. This distracts Blade long enough to get captured. Blade, Karen, and the vampire council members are dragged to an ancient vampire temple. Blade has gone too long without his serum and is barely able to focus. Frost taunts Blade and the need for his serum, mistaking Blade's remaining EDTA injectors for that serum, and tosses Chekhov's vials down into the chamber below. Speaking of below, Karen is pushed into a pit containing Curtis, her ex and the morgue attendant, who has become some sort of vampire zombie. She is able to fight him off and escape from the pit. Blade isn't so lucky as he is taken to a room above the main chamber where he's put into a device and drains the daywalker of most of his blood. It falls through channels placed around the room and the ceremony begins. The council members are all transformed into strange skeleton demons that fly through and then fully into Deacon Frost transforming him into La Magra. Above, Karen frees Blade and lets him feed from her to regain his strength. On a blood high, Blade kills his mom and proceeds to once again absolutely wreck house, including finally dispatching Quinn. 
it's down to just Blade and God Mode Frost now. They engage in a sword fight and seem evenly matched until Blade manages to cut off one of Frost's arms and then slice him in half. But Deacon easily regenerates from the wounds and proves he can overpower the lesser Daywalker. Blade does his best, but he is mostly just surviving until he spots his EDTA injectors. Frost thinks nothing of them, figuring they are just Blade Serum. Blade retrieves the injectors and proceeds to toss all the anticoagulant into the god made of blood, causing a nice big wet explosion. Blade and Karen climb back up to the surface in a strange windy desert morning that feels like an apocalypse actually happened. Karen offers to work on a cure for Blade, but he has accepted his fate and instead asks for a better serum. In Moscow, Vampire bites you! Wait. Anyways, a lady walks with a vampire who is promising her warmth and comfort before attacking her. Before he can bite her, Samuel L. Jackson shows up to recruit him into the Avengers. Wait, sorry. Blade shows up to start an international incident. The end. God damn it. What a movie. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty good and straightforward. Do you have a less straightforward take? Uh, yeah, I kind of tried to look at the movie in less of a vacuum and tried to appreciate everything that it gave us in ways that it really had no business giving it to us. Fantastic. Here we go. Today, I think I speak for both of us when I say we are delighted to be discussing Blade by legendary director Stephen Norrington, <laughs> who brought us comic book film hits like, oh Christ, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Well, at least he directed a lot of God damn it, only two other movies, one of which was straight to DVD. Okay, well, unlike all the music video directors who went into comic book films, of which we've seen a lot of work in this podcast, Norrington got his start as a makeup and special effects artist. And, despite directing literally two movies ever after this one, watch as he just utterly nails it for a low-budget late 90s movie. And Norrington shows off his effects skills immediately in the iconic and nightmare-fuel-inducing opening scene of some random guy being taken to a vampire nightclub with blood literally raining from the ceiling. And then Norrington doubles down later in the movie with some very gnarly, distorted, bloated, exploding vampires. Because Blade wouldn't be Blade if this movie had been PG-13. Born to a vampire-bitten mother, Eric Brooks has sworn revenge on those who caused him to be born half-human, half-vampire. A so-called daywalker, he's immune to the sun, silver, and garlic that are the bane of ordinary vampires. Our anti-hero and his best friend, Chris Christofferson, playing himself, seek out the vampire responsible for biting Blade's mother and turning him into what he is. Effortlessly cool and absolutely prepared to be a character in The Matrix a year later, Blade is a sword-wielding, leather-clad vampire, vampire killing machine. He wins us over immediately by making the techno in the club stop just <laughs> bask in the batshit martial arts and vampire wackiness that led to exactly one fantastic sequel, which also brought back the 100% dead Abraham Whistler just because Chris Christopherson was so great at being Chris Christopherson in the first film. But this movie never lets you forget the main attraction as Wesley Snipes delivers easily his most iconic role through some stoic but potent three-dimensional acting. Only a few years after being shot down for attempting to give us a Black Panther movie, Snipes showed Marvel what he could do as leather punchy vampire man. Yes, true believers, instead of a mid-90s Wesley Snipes Black Panther movie, we got Blade! And speaking for both 9-year-old me that first saw this and 29-year-old me that just rewatched it, 
I am the last person who is going to complain about that. Because Blade is a feat, an accomplishment, both the film and the character. Ruthless, efficient, Blade doesn't let his mission stop him from making some great theatrical flourishes in his War on the Vampires. While some superheroes dish out one-liners with puns for days, Blade's the kind of guy who just laments how some motherfuckers are always trying to skate uphill. <laughs> because that's just what Blade is in the hands of Wesley Snipes. If Superman made us believe that a man could fly, Blade made us believe that a man in a leather trench coat could do spins and shit in the middle of a sword fight and make it look cool. Plus, it earns its R rating with every motherfucker uttered by Wesley Snipes and every swimming pool amount of blood that gets shed in the fight scenes. We even get a prototype pre-credits version of a Marvel post-credits scene as Blade goes to Moscow and is confronted by Nick Fury, who's about to ask him to join the Avengers Initiative, but then gets kind of spooked at the last minute and decides not to, and also because Luke stole this goddamn joke. <laughs> so in case I haven't emphasized it enough yet, this film makes no sense, it shouldn't have been made, and somehow it was! And we're all the better for it. Blade! If you haven't seen Blade, go watch Blade! Oh, fantastic. I'm sorry I stole that joke. It's okay. I came up with the joke. I don't even remember what episode, so I'll take the homage. Yeah. But not, not in the same episode. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. So when we did our episode for Blade 2, we got a few people commenting about us not discussing the importance of Blade, and it's because we wanted to wait until we were discussing this movie. It also would have made our Blade 2 episode like 40 minutes longer. Yeah. And as of recording this, we are days away from Avengers Endgame coming out. Absolutely the biggest comic book movie up to this point, with over 10 years of groundwork leading up to it. If it weren't for Blade, we probably wouldn't be seeing it. Blade is just such an incredibly important film though it was made by New Line. So it was before Marvel was making their own stuff. There was a point where they were going bankrupt and started selling off all of their characters for movies so that they could stay afloat. But this movie did so well, it paved the way for everything that has come after it. There's no Spider-Man without this. There's no 2000 X-Men without this. I mean, this movie had a relatively... Decent budget of $45 million at the time. It pulled down $131.2 million. And it's rated R, which relates back to yeah. your comment from Deadpool about producers and money men always assuming that no one wants to see an R-rated movie. Yeah, you definitely should all go back and listen to our Deadpool episode, our previous episode, in case you haven't, because aside from all of the politics and financial dealings that go into a rated R comic book movie. Uh, we also talk about people regrowing hands, and that also <laughs> happens in this movie. Hey, how about that? Swords, blood, and rated R. Yep. And additionally, it stars a black man. That didn't happen again in comic book movies for over 15 years. It's mostly racism. Partially due to the fact that the year before we got Spawn and Steel. Uh, so financially motivated racism? Possibly. racism. It's also possible that at the time the internet was just a pup and discussions about the importance of representation were barely a thing. Uh, at least the word about it didn't get widespread. 
even today, there were people who were posting after Black Panther about how great it was that we finally had a superhero movie with a black protagonist. And uh, yeah, <laughs> like a lot of comic fans are like, uh, y'all seen Blade? Yeah. There's three of them. And just such a big deal. You come for the martial arts and bloodbaths. You stay for the morality and the representation. Yeah. This film does a good job of taking something that we all know about, like the mythos of vampires, uh, mm-hmm. and it twists them just enough to make an old thing feel new without going overboard, like they're trying to reboot vampires, so to speak. Uh, it yes. also made it interesting that Del Toro took on the sequel because he then does something similar with his uh, books and later TV show, The Strain, which I, I mentioned mm-hmm. in our Blade 2 review a little bit. Um, but in this one, we get the both the culture and the biology of vampires are kind of tweaked. So they're able to regenerate limbs and tissue over time with the help of some protein as well. Mm-hmm. And there's there's this sort of confrontation between the elder council of vampire types, the purebloods who discriminate against the converted vampires. All of these groups have various familiars who are humans that have not been turned but are being used as tools. And I do appreciate all the things that they tweaked about the vampires, but I do think it's dumb as hell that familiars would get tattoos on the backs of their necks. <laughs> that is very Hollywoody, but it is not sensible. Agreed. And in this movie, every bit of information about what makes these vampires what they are, it's just sort of very slowly doled out through the course of the movie, rather than just hammering it all up top. Yeah, they- Whistler and Blade give some exposition to Dr. Jensen throughout the movie. And uh, it is interesting the way that they frame it, because you're right. It's never really like, oh, you dumb idiot. Here's how vampires really work. Mm-hmm. This movie, I think, strips away a lot of the not not necessarily the theatricality, but just some of the elements that were very Hollywoody and then imposed on vampires in horror movies from Universal and others throughout the years. Mm-hmm. It's like crosses and running water classic black and white dracula movie stuff yeah so wow we're really top loading this let's get to the best opening scene with the blood rave not a fan of the music but that's literally the one bad thing i could say about it yeah it's super visually dynamic something that bothered me was when the blood actually kicks in so much blood so much blood it seems like a massive waste of blood. So, I did the math. Oh, no. On how many humans would need to be drained. <laughs> I'm kidding. I No, no way I was going to do that. But it did seem like a massive waste of blood. It looks awesome and ultra dynamic. Yeah, I guess it's the vampire equivalent of, like, vodka being shot out of the sprinklers. Or, you know, it's, it's food for them. So I guess it's, like, soup being shot out of sprinklers. <laughs> yeah. It's so great. Yeah, I I 100% had nightmares about that when I first saw this movie. But I feel like it's such a good opening scene that I've seen mm-hmm. this movie probably a dozen times now. And I always forget the scene before it with Blade's mom being rushed into the hospital and uh, dying as he's born. Because mm-hmm. in my mind, I always think of this as the opening scene. Yeah, it's so solid and leads right into the sweet-ass reveal of Blade. That camera work is great. Yeah, I think it was a nice mix of skills from a guy who came into the industry doing makeup and special effects, which helps the atmosphere of that scene a lot. And then you have Wesley Snipes, who came in with a strong martial arts background. 
And them working together gave us so many bizarre, unforgettable, exhilarating scenes. Yeah, killing Tracy Lords, who gets an opening credit spot but dies before the eight-minute mark. Probably the peak of her cinematic career. She went on to do some good TV. Oh, she was in a movie called Chump Change, which is based on the real-life story of a guy from Milwaukee who tried to make it in L.A. and how that all went down for him. I'll check it out, but I will stand by my statement that this is probably the peak of her cinematic (laughs) career. So with everything looking so great, we also get a first shot of Blade having a sense of humor as he smiles before he lops the heads off of a few vampires. He also fist pumps himself when he nails Quinn with a stake. It's so good. Wesley Snipes definitely had a lot of fun with this character. and It's so obvious he had so much fun. Yeah, he's a very serious, stoic, introverted, self-hating person. And yet he loves his job. He found his calling. Yeah. And that's beautiful. Yeah. And in the club, we also get a glimpse of the ultimate antagonist, Deacon Frost, who's at the club and uh, pretty much leaves before any of the trouble starts. Great setup. Yeah. So Tim Guinea plays the morgue attendant, Curtis. He is in three different Marvel timelines now. Oh, is he in the MCU? Yes. He is James Rhodes' best friend in the military in Iron Man 1 and 2. Hmm. And then he plays the father of a kid with PTSD in the first season of The Punisher. Oh, yeah. So he's in three different Marvel timelines. It's weird. Technically, too. But I don't know if the TV shows are out of the MCU now or what the fuck's going on with that. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, they they stopped caring about keeping them separate. Yeah. So then more with the comedy when the security shoots Blade and he just steps to them. Motherfucker, you out of your damn mind. Yeah. Now, this is just a comment, not a criticism, uh, with Karen being bitten and Blade worried about her turning. I've never been a fan of the one bite and you're doomed. They they picked something, they went with it, it's nothing new. I'm just stating it, I'm, I've never been a fan. What do you prefer? Some sort of process. Like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I believe, it's you basically have to be drained till you're pretty much dead, and then drink the blood of the vampire who drained you. Oh, that's gnarly. Yeah. Yeah, and if any of you are into vampire stuff but haven't seen The Strain yet, check it out. That's got bloodworms, which are their own kind of nightmare fuel, because uh, you yeah, may remember are. the poster of The Strain with the worm going into the lady's eye. Yeah. Um. So then we get the vampire council type thing. In it, they have one little line, which is beautiful. They mention a truce and suggest that World governments are aware of vampires and have just sort of made a deal with them, like a sort of as long as you lay low, we won't come after you type deal. It explains away so many problems with vampires in the world and somehow remaining secret. Yeah, I mean, how else are they going to get enough blood to put through the club sprinklers? <laughs> right? Yeah, I think that's part of what I appreciated when I was saying that that this movie kind of tweaks the culture of the vampires because a lot of vampire stories have the familiars that are cops or like the hospitals or blood banks or what have you. It's always kind of more 
practical low level stuff, but the Vampire mm-hmm. Council, the Council of Elders and Purebloods, you can kind of tell from the way the council's set up that these people are not fucking around. So it makes sense mm-hmm. that they have world governments in league with them. Yeah. And there's also sort of an international flair to the attendees of the meeting. So you have to imagine, oh, yeah. like you said, it's it's world governments. It's very widespread and established stuff. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there aren't really any such quick lines of dialogue to explain Frost. Deacon Frost, one of many magnetotypes in the Marvel Universe. Similar goals with much shittier motivations. But he basically yeah. wants a world for vampires without humans and... Uh, not so much for the civil rights slash being afraid of Nazis reasons, <laughs> just for power and dominance. But like I said, similar goals, shittier motivations. Also, yeah, the dude I... fucking loves taking hostages. That's something I never really noticed before, but the little huh. girl in the park, Vampire Council leader, Gitano Dragonetti, uh, later when he attacks Blade's lair, Karen Whistler, and then even Blade's mother, who he absolutely Stockholm syndromed. <laughs> Absolutely. I wish they would have done a little more to explain his motivations and his endgame beyond being angry. You're... Well, it seems like he has, a, he has a chip on his shoulder from being converted as opposed to a pureblood, and it seems like really what escalates things is the repeated rejections of him from the inner circle of vampires. And they touch mm-hmm. on that in the sequel, where uh, the leader of the vampires that Blade meets actually thanks him for killing Deacon Frost. <laughs> is that not enough motivation for you? It is, but it's a lot of extrapolating to get there on our own. You know, I love to extrapolate. <laughs> so we talked about how they slowly dole out information about this world, and we get to one of my favorite lines as Whistler is showing off his UV light, and he hands it to Blade, and Blade says, still heavy. And Whistler says, you're so big. Proud dad right there. It's so beautiful. So good. It works because these two guys really sell this relationship, which kind of doesn't make a ton do. of sense, but their their chemistry and their commitment to this is palpable. Yeah, their relationship is a good centerpiece for displaying how good of an actor both these people are. Yeah, and also why they brought Chris Christopherson back. Yeah. The movies miss a little something without him. Even though he very clearly killed himself. Indisputably dead. Indisputably dead. I'm totally okay with them bringing him back. Yeah. So, we also touched on familiars, and we meet the familiar cop after a really weird familiars are following her sequence, and then they just go into a different door. Maybe they just had neck tattoos. We don't know. But no, they they were totally familiars. They were definitely familiars. Yeah. It's a weird scene, but it's fine. It works. It's a good tension builder because then they kind of burst the bubble of tension when the cop shows up because you're, you know, instinctively, hey, it's a cop. We're fine. Yeah. But then it immediately reinflates the balloon in a very nice way. Sort of plays (laughs) with you. Yeah. And leads to Blade beating up a cop in broad daylight. The only thing that was missing, considering this is in L.A., is the soundtrack of Fuck the Police. Yeah. But for the late 90s, that might have been a little too on the nose. Maybe Cop Killer? Somehow more on the nose. Yeah. 
a sort of weird bit in that scene it's when the cop is running away and blade is aiming a gun at him everybody sort of screams and scatters but then like immediately resumes what they were doing like nothing happened yeah the bystanders in this movie are really fucking weird um you pointed out in the synopsis that after the little hostage situation in the park where Deacon Frost just grabs some little girl and Blade starts shooting at Frost in the middle of the park and then the girl gets thrown into the middle of a busy street, zero bystanders give a shit. No one freaks out. No one tries to rescue the girl. No one stops and asks if they're okay after Blade pulls her to the sidewalk. Yeah, that bus was going to hit her. Yeah. I, I'm going to attribute that to a rookie director but something That's you possible. might not focus on as much when you're trying to pull off your first major feature film. Yeah. Um, so um, there are more movies where it's egregious, but I have a problem when changes made to a character in a movie affect stories and the characters in the comics that are being printed concurrently. Um, but in this case, it works. So Blade in the comics... His origin is more or less the same, where his mother was bitten while she was pregnant and gave birth to Blade, but he wasn't really part vampire. He had a longer lifespan than humans, could mm -hmm. sense supernatural creatures, and was actually immune to being turned into a vampire. He didn't have the uh, super strength or super reflexes. He was just a very talented fighter. Yes. And after the movie came out, then they added it to the character, but it worked. Yeah, it's also just a very compelling elevator pitch for the character. Deacon Frost kind of gives it when he's confronting Blade later, but it's basically Blade is half human, half vampire, and he got pretty much all of the strengths and pretty much none of the weaknesses other than his yeah. powerful thirst for blood. Yeah, and to do it in the comics, they didn't shoehorn it. It wasn't just suddenly he's this and not what he was before. Um... What they did was they took a long-running foe of Blade named Morbius, who unfortunately we will meet cinematically soon, who himself isn't exactly a vampire. He sort of created himself from science accidentally. Sort of a man-bat situation. Very much a man-bat situation, actually. So you have this combination of this weird vampire biting a guy who should be immune to vampirism, and it turned him into something else. Mm -hmm. And just to give some credit, that was done by a writer named Howard Mackey. Nice. So there's two final fight scenes pretty much back to back. We get the fight scene in Deacon Frost's penthouse thing where we get to see Blade pop a couple vampires. And his impressive motorcycle smuggling. Yeah, that was very weird. Not much of a payoff either. No, he just drives in a room and gets off of it. So cool. I want to joke that it's toyetic, which is industry term when you put something in a TV show or a movie for the sole purpose of making a toy out of it. But this is a rated R movie. At the same time, they did make a toy out of it eventually for the ah. Marvel Legends line. Nice. Then the final, final fight, I'm having a hard time thinking of the word, to describe this temple that is clearly way more advanced than it should be. Sort of like a wind tunnel, but vertical. And yeah. there's weird little holes in the ceiling from which Blade's blood was being dripped as part of this ceremony. 
and it forms a weird spider web on the ceiling, which then drips down into these 12 spots where 12 elder vampires have to be standing. Mm-hmm. And you're right, it's meant to be this like ancient, mysterious vampire temple, but it definitely looks like it just got built. There's even construction stuff around the temple uh, that Blade <laughs> and some of the vampires end up fighting around. So it's kind of weird. Yeah, it looks cool. I thought it was really cool to see the way the blood ran across the marble ceiling because it, it flowed without dripping to form a sort of spider web from the 12 holes that were then dripping onto the vampire elders. This is really chilling but effective special effects moment. And um, mm-hmm. it just added layers of this sort of like creepy supernatural shit to a movie that already had some creepy supernatural shit, but the Blood God ceremony and the ritual just felt more like like we suddenly got a bit of Hellboy as opposed to Blade, just especially given how the first hour and a half of this movie was trying to ground a lot of the vampire mythos. But I'm not saying this to complain because it all results in a wild Mortal Kombat-ass showdown mm-hmm. and sword fight. But throughout all that fight, if I had to pick one thing to criticize, I would poke fun at the guy who shadow kicks with Blade. They both just do some <laughs> roundhouse kicks at each other. Neither of them so connect. Ridiculous. But they just keep doing roundhouse kicks at each other, clearly not touching. But as silly as that was... It was also two grown men performing flawless roundhouse kicks for our entertainment. And that has its own merits. Absolutely fair. And I really enjoy the fact that they did spend all this movie grounding vampires, adding a bit of science to it with Karen being a hematologist and talking about aspects of vampire blood and why vampires need blood. But they're still legitimate magic in this world yeah they just saved it for the third act i guess yeah and that's fine that it's not everywhere magic but there is magic i absolutely forgot how many of the same action beats in this final fight scene are duplicated into blade 2 we we get blade hopped up on blood we get him easily taking out the number two guy yeah and we get him catching his sunglasses and putting them on god it's just so stupid and cheesy and yet i love it so much absolutely this movie knows what it is yeah and it's definitely something that if you see when you're nine you cannot make it dumb in hindsight in your brain because it's forever (laughs) amazing and then we get the final showdown with the final boss the blood god la magra and deacon frost is now La Magra. Has the ability to regenerate, can move yeah. much faster. Can presumably walk in the daylight. And we get to see him pop very grotesquely. Um, I also appreciated that they brought back the weird little blades popping out of blade sword thing. Because it pops yeah. up not once before, like most lazy callback things do in movies. But we first see it when Karen checks out his sword and accidentally triggers it, almost Mm -hmm. stabbing her eyes out. Uh, And then later, another vampire, when they capture Blade, uh, ends up slicing his own hand off with it. And then in the Mm -hmm. end, Blade throws it into a uh, crumbling bit of concrete that's holding all the serum. And it triggers it, loosening the concrete, dropping the serum. Yeah. And then we get such a great final line. Not of the whole movie, just of the fight. As you stated very well in your synopsis, would you mind stating it again? Some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. So good. So good. 
I know that on the day of shooting that scene, Wesley Snipes basically said, hey, I should have something cool to say at this point. And someone just said that. Wow. And he, and he was like, yeah, yeah, I like that. And, uh, you know, Deacon Frost was trying to ice skate uphill. Yeah. I also appreciate how the ending of this movie, not the little pre-credits, post-credits Moscow thing, but the, the scene where he and Karen emerge out of the temple. I appreciate that that ending doesn't have anyone celebrating, basically basking the, in the accomplishment of literally saving the world. Um, Blade basically tells Karen that he wants her to make him a better serum so he can keep killing vampires. Mm-hmm. Like standard Hollywood ending would have been them kissing after they save the world. And, you know, he could still say, I still want to hunt vampires and I hope you'll join me or something. But instead of enjoying the moment, just turn to her and say, don't cure me. I need to keep doing this. Help me do this better. Yeah, there's no romantic angle between them. Yeah, it definitely gets hinted at a little bit. And they they certainly seem to care for each other, but it never develops beyond them. You know, comrades in arms, basically. Yeah, but no, this movie this movie was ahead of its time in a lot of ways. We've we've already talked about a few, and there's a lot of stuff that we appreciate here. Like the main character, as as badass as he is throughout the movie, he's also sick. He's slowly dying throughout the whole thing as well. Um, you talked about the serum and how he needs the regular injections to keep from going full vampire, and you can see that mm-hmm. those serum injections they take a toll on him. And this movie from the late '90s, no less. We have a guy who's fighting what he assumes is a losing battle. He's basically on a suicide mission, mm-hmm. and he's not above living a low life, so to speak. Like he, he robs the vampires that he's killing so he can help fund Whistler's inventions and I don't know buy more garlic essence. Yeah, and in addition to all of that, a lot of credit needs to go to Stephen Norrington. And we will definitely talk about him more someday when we do League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Let's keep it laudatory for this one, though. Yeah. There are two bad edits and one piece of clunky dialogue in this movie. The clunky dialogue is when Whistler is about to give Blade his serum injection. He says something about, like, I've had a look at her notebook. She might be onto something. Yeah, you can just say she's a blood doctor. We get it. <laughs> yeah, and the notebook never comes up again. And right. and in that exact same scene comes one of the first bad edits where Karen sees Whistler giving Blade the injection, then Blade spots Karen and she runs off. They do a cutaway after Whistler goes running after her, and they cut back to Blade still, like, just sort of staring at where she was, and Whistler mm-hmm. still holding his hand. Aww. Now, all that may sound like a bunch of nitpicks, but I'm pointing out these things because we've joked and made fun of things, but we clearly love this movie. All of these things that we have pointed out negatively or just critically, you don't notice them unless you're looking for them. And credit for that goes to Norrington and his editor, a man named Paul Rubel. Um, No, they nailed it. Yeah. Maybe there was another piece of dialogue in that scene. Maybe the notebook in one draft of the script does come up later, but they had to cut it out for some reason or didn't film it for some reason. But they already had that one scene filmed, so they just had to keep it in there. Yeah, you don't get a ton of money for reshoots when it's your first major movie. And it's already pretty low budget. Yeah. So they do a lot of covering up 
for their budget, and it works. I sort of joked in my synopsis how basically three very convenient things happen back-to-back. Blade discovers Pearl and the data drive, which Pearl happened to finish deciphering that data onto that drive, and that happened to be in the same place where the vampire Bible was being kept, and Frost's men happened to get there in time to catch Blade, and then Whistler happened to be there because there happened to be a subway there. That's a lot of coincidences, and from a directing standpoint, maybe they had to do that for time and budget, but you don't notice. So massive kudos to Stephen Norrington and Paul Rubel and anybody else involved with the decisions to put this movie together the way it was, because it turned out great. There is one person that we also have to applaud here, and it's someone we have mentioned a lot, never with applause. But this is, I think, as good a time as any to say, David S. Goyer did a good job writing this screenplay. (laughs) So, good job, David S. Goyer. I guess. Yay. Yay. Uh, Okay, moving on. (laughs) Uh. This is also, sadly, still one of the most diverse comic book films ever made. Still. Mm -hmm. There are more black actors and actresses in this movie than, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, pretty much everything other than Black Panther. And Karen is one of the few strong independent women in, in the nearly 30 movies we've covered at this point in the podcast. I think we can still count them on one hand. But aside from having agency and rarely being a damsel in distress... She contributes invaluable scientific knowledge to the Blade and Whistler team, basically escalates their their weaponry to a degree that they didn't even imagine possible uh, with the EDTA stuff. And then she later escapes an inescapable vampire death trap to rescue Blade from certain death before helping him save the world from certain death. Uh, so yeah. Dr. Karen Jensen nailed it. Yeah, now that you're specifically stating the term damsel in distress, she's never actually... A damsel in distress. She's captured, sure. She was attacked a couple times, but even at the end, when Frost has her captured, Blade isn't the one who rescues her. Yeah, she basically rescues herself whenever she does need rescue. (laughs) Yeah, the one time I thought she might have been a damsel in distress is in the first scenes of her when she's attacked by Quinn. Uh, But then I realized Mm -hmm. she gets bitten, so it's not like Blade really rescues her. Right. So... Yeah, Karen Jensen, just killing it. And killing vampires. Yeah. Um, talk about a white guy for a minute, even though they get talked okay. about plenty. I think that this is one of Steven Dorff's best roles, and I also, while saying that, sympathize with him because it took him a while to get steady mainstream acting work after this, mm-hmm. in part because he got a little typecast um, as sort of like a monologuing, edgy villain type. But this is like prime, young, sexy Stephen Dorff right here at the top of his game (laughs) in a way that shows his range because he tends to shine in quieter roles than this one. But Dorff was like my age when he played Deacon Frost and he nailed it. This character is such a great foil for Blade. Similarly ruthless and dedicated, also strategic and trying to think a few steps ahead. Um, But but personality-wise, they are polar opposites and it makes for such a good dynamic Uh, that you didn't even need him to be the one who bit Blade's mother to feel the amount of tension. It's it's icing on the cake, for sure. But Mm -hmm. I think Deacon Frost, without that, very much stood on its own, and a lot of that goes to Stephen Dorff. 
yeah, he does very solid work. I guess he's on the new season of True Detective. So, nice. Yeah, so any other final thoughts? Oh, a little quick final thought. For those of you who know me, you know I am not a religious man. And apparently neither is Chris Christopherson, because in this movie, he sets <laughs> off a bomb that destroys the vampire Bible. And in Blade 2, the sequel to this film, he shoots a bunch of vampire fetuses. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't show up in Blade Trinity just to covet some of his neighbor's stuff. <laughs> but I think they called it Trinity just to preempt the anti-religious aspect. It was, it was a real cop-out. Very disappointing. Probably the main reason that movie flopped, but that's neither here nor there. Nice takeaway. Thanks. Uh, so what's your favorite thing in this movie? Um, I think my favorite thing is, it's something we kind of already touched on, but it's just how this movie could have been made 10 years after it got made and stood exactly as well as it did when it came out. Um, this movie could have come out last year and it would I would still have enjoyed it as much as I did. Mm -hmm. It ages really well because it was ahead of its oh, time yeah. in so many ways. From the flawed, vulnerable main character to the compelling, motivated for reasons beyond just world domination villain, uh, to showing the toll that this battle takes on all of the characters, and also the diversity. We had multiple black actors in this movie, and uh, that's something that should be normal, but the fact that this happened in the late 90s instead of now, I think is is very laudatory and you touched on it in the beginning about representation and how important mm -hmm. it was at the time. And I think it's still very important because we haven't really made much progress. So for all of those reasons, this movie was ahead of its time. And for all of those reasons, that aspect of this movie, both on screen and off screen, make that aspect of it my favorite thing about this movie. This whole thing was just an accomplishment on so many levels. And it's it's really hard to pick one favorite thing, but yeah. we, we kind of had to. So what's your favorite thing? Mm -hmm. My favorite thing is how big of a swing this movie was beginning to end. Rated R, black yep. leading man. Yep. Decent budget, made a huge amount of money, solid action. I mean, this movie clearly trusted everybody involved. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, my favorite thing about this movie is this movie. What a cop-out. <laughs> no I, I can't argue with that yeah i know i hear what you're saying it has so much going on behind the scenes our favorite things are basically the same thing you know just how important this movie ended up being and it wasn't because it was trying to be important it was just trying to be good and it is really good yeah they even sacrificed a big special effects ending specifically to keep the showdown between blade and deacon frost I think he was supposed yeah. to be originally it was just like basically a big old hurricane of blood. Yeah. Probably also mm -hmm. wouldn't have looked very good. So both for practical and storytelling purposes, as with everything else, they made the right decision here. Yeah. So with that said, how would you fix this movie? Uh oh, well, uh, tricky, but I think the one thing I really wanted more of from this movie, actually it's stuff that got addressed in the sequel. So it's sort of a, a shitty complaint, but you know, if we hadn't had to talk about the sequel before this one, you wouldn't know it's a shitty complaint. I wanted more of the world building from the vampire side of things. The mm. council with Dragonetti and all of the weird vampires from all over the world was just immensely interesting to me. The yeah. idea of the power dynamics 
the leverage that they have against the humans and vice versa that keeps them from actively ruling us. The idea of vampire elders from these pure bloodlines, aside from vampires that were just born vampires instead of being turned, there seemed to be a specific set of vampires that were elders that were ruling families in the vampire world. And um, we get more of it in the sequel, and I love it. And I thought it would have been more interesting to get some of that in this movie because it's still effectively done. But um, you, you kind of pointed out, we don't exactly understand why Deacon Frost has such a chip on his shoulder about the purebloods. Why does he have a relationship with them in the first place? What are they getting out of each other? What is his role in things? Because he seems pretty well connected for someone who isn't a pureblood. And this movie stands on its own. Clearly, we've sucked its stick enough that you understand that we're fans <laughs> of where, where it's at. But I felt like it would have been a richer tapestry for them to weave had they included more of that stuff. And I also understand why they didn't, because we got a sequel where they did do it. I don't feel like it's as big of a problem for me. But in the vacuum of just this movie, that would be my one fix suggestion. How would you fix it? I think we have spiritually the exact same favorite and fix. Oh. Because my fix is centered solely on Deacon Frost for all of the same things you said. Just a little more backstory so that we could understand more about why he hates the purebloods, aside from them clearly being pricks, and yeah, how yeah. he rose so high in the ranks. His character's fine. We get enough of motivation to go along with it, and yeah. it's not broken. So, with all of that, take us home. Well, we would like to thank Catherine over at Lone Shoe Graphics for designing our logo. If you have any graphic design needs, reach out to Catherine over at Lone Shoe Graphics. If you're more Nightwalker than Daywalker, let us know on Twitter at SnarkNightsPod. And if you have any longer thoughts, or if you are David S. Goyer and you're just really mad at us for never saying anything nice about you until today, send us an email at SnarkNightsPod at gmail.com. And now my favorite part of the podcast, aside from us inadvertently agreeing on our favorite and fix this thing because we usually don't have the same shit, Luke is now shaking a hat with pieces of paper in it with the names of comic book movies on them. And hopefully we will get something super fun for episode 28. Okay. No, it's not Batman v Superman. But join us next time when we delve into the now very problematic 2006 Superman Returns. Ah, a film that I did not want to see ever. And then I agreed yeah. to do this podcast. So you haven't seen it yet? No, I actually did end up watching it after we started doing this podcast. Because <laughs> I knew I'd have to eventually. Fun. It's not, but uh, <laughs> we don't have to worry about it for a couple weeks. Yeah. We will see you in a couple weeks. And until then, I apologize for nothing.